Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Since our launch in 2020, it's been listened to 175,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thank you to all our listeners. And if you're a first timer, welcome. Arab Digest is something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors and we carry our podcasts without advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, what about making a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. You heard that right, two months for free. My guest today is Tariq Megarisi. Tariq is a policy fellow with the North Africa and Middle East program at the ECFR, the European Council on Foreign Relations. He's a political analyst and researcher who specializes in North African affairs and politics, governance, and development in the Arab world. And I'm pleased to say he's a regular contributor to our Arab Digest podcast. Today's conversation is about the current situation in Libya. Tarek, good to have you back. Hi, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for for inviting me on. Now, before we get on to Libya, I do want to get your thoughts on the war in Gaza. After the horrors of the 7th of October, Hamas attack, we've seen the slaughter of now more than 14,000 Palestinians trapped in Gaza Strip, another 200 killed in the West Bank by the IDF and settler vigilantes. This is a war that Israel says it will win. Do you think it's winning? Do you think it can win? <laughs> I I don't even know what win means anymore, to be honest, in this context. Um, I think that if you if we look at the situation in front of us, there are probably maybe three different definitions of winning, uh, depending on which part of this wider alliance you ask. You know, this uh, this group of the world's most technologically advanced states and, and militaries who are currently pulverizing the Gaza Strip. Um, you know, the nicer face of this alliance, uh, the United States of America, the Europeans who, you know, love to, to patronizingly tell us that, that this is all about Israel's right to self-defense and that what Israel and the IDF are doing is, is carrying out a counterterrorism campaign. Um, under that narrative, I think winning is defined as completely removing Hamas from the Gaza Strip, which, you know, sticks in with that image. It, it, it seems plausible. It seems something that most of us are familiar with from previous campaigns against Al-Qaeda, against ISIS, and so on. And now let's not kind of get into the ironies of this as an objective. Um, but if that is indeed the objective, then this is a very counterproductive approach to achieving it. You know, after obliterating most of the built-up areas of Gaza, after committing atrocities like, you know, forcefully shutting down hospitals, uh, forcing babies to die in incubators, um, which is something I can't even believe I'm actually saying, and, and just massacring large swathes of the population, you know, you're only going to drive people towards Hamas because they are an embedded resistance movement, whether we like it or not. And I think it says a lot that, you know, one month after Hamas did, did you know, massacre civilians in Israel in, in deeply distressing and inhuman ways. And I think that's something important to acknowledge because there has been a kind of almost a counter narrative being produced to kind of gloss over that. But despite all of that, you know, 
to me at least, it seems that Hamas are clearly winning the PR war here. Um, and that should really spur a moment of, of self-reflection uh, amongst the, the coalition, because honestly, you know, how disgusting do your own actions have to be to, to start off from the point of October 7th and, and still look like the bad guy here? And the second definition of winning, Tirk? The, the second definition of winning that I've kind of discerned is the one that is espoused by, by large sections of Israel's extreme right-wing government, its cultural establishment. And it's, a, it's kind of chilling, I think, if you note how much of that political and cultural establishment and, and even how many of the normal population of Israel just simply have no acknowledgement at all of the humanity of, of, of Palestinians. It's not even dehumanization. It's, it's almost like they consider them some kind of repulsive scourge that has to be extinguished. And if you look at the statements of these politicians and of these groups, it, it's, it's really quite clear that what they want to do is to reclaim large chunks um, if not all of the Gaza Strip, and kind of use the cover of this military response to Hamas and Gaza to, to also catalyze the ethnic cleansing of the West Bank. Um, so basically, when the dust settles, they want to have seized as much land as possible in Palestine and, and killed or expelled as many Palestinians as possible. Um, and as kind of distressing as it is to say, that probably has a higher chance of success than the first uh, definition of winning here. Um, because, you know, the block on this happening is not the conscience of of Israelis or, or any of their Western partners, and it's not their military capacity. I mean, they could probably do this overnight. What the block is, is the political pressure that this activity is creating elsewhere in the global political system. I mean, already large swathes of the world from, from kind of Chile to South Africa to Malaysia are, are outraged and appalled at what's happening. Um, the Abraham Accords group is, is kind of shaken with the, the UAE and Saudi Arabia kind of trying to lead the diplomatic push against what's going on. I mean, even old allies like, like Jordan and Egypt, who have been you know at peace since the 70s, are being pushed into ever more desperate and kind of hardline statements in a bid to stop this happening. So if the Israelis keep pushing towards this, this barbaric goal, um, and they do it too hard and too fast, and it really could trigger a regional war, and, and God knows where that leads. And, you know, the last definition of winning, um, which is probably one that I don't hear discussed hardly at all, um, but it's worth being cognizant of, um, because it highlights how utterly depraved this whole thing is, is to kind of make the case to say that this is all about Netanyahu saving his political skin. Uh, I mean, the guy was deeply unpopular to begin with, um, and then many blamed him uh, for his failure to stop October 7th happening. And, you know, Bibi's whole shtick is that he would be the guy who stops the Palestinian state ever emerging by empowering Hamas against the Palestinian Authority, uh, defanging Hamas and kind of neutralizing any armed resistance to Israel by periodically mowing the lawn, which is this horrible clinical phrase for regularly killing um, armed resistance actors, uh, for want of a better term, um, in order to manage them. And, and you know, it's clear that after October 7th, this policy has failed catastrophically. Uh, so right now he knows that as soon as this war ends, he's done for. Uh, the polling numbers are, are hugely stacked against him. So really he feels like he has to keep waging a war until something that looks like either satisfying revenge or, or victory can be created that would be sufficient for him to kind of keep this this Frankenstein's monster of a coalition going on or, or to allow him to build a new one. So yeah, I, I don't really know what winning looks like. Um, it's probably healthier for us to, to focus on how this ends 
um, which is that, you know, we just hope that the ceasefire continues, hostages continue to be released. Uh, and eventually there's there's too much inertia around the prolonged truce and, and Netanyahu has too little political capital remaining to start up hostilities again. Um, because a real win here would be to to stop October 7th happening again or to stop the systematic massacre of Palestinians happening again. And the only way to do that is, is through a political settlement. Yeah, we come back to that over and over again, don't we? That you cannot win this through military action. It has to be a political settlement and yeah who knows maybe that will you know lead to finally a two-state solution out of all this horror i guess that would be the only possible hope that we can take out of it all but but look let's move on now if we can to libya and i think it would be helpful Tarek, if you could just describe libya as it is now for our listeners it's it's a country divided between two governments can, can you briefly just paint a picture for our listeners about what's happening in Libya right now, because there's been so much focus on Gaza, understandably. But meanwhile, there's Libya. Yeah, um, that's another big question. And I'll I'll try to paint the overarching picture as, as best as I can. Uh, but, you know, just as you were talking there, it reminded me that the phrase that there is no military solution to this conflict was, was one that was uttered over and over again for Libya uh, during the war on, on Tripoli from 2019 to 20. And it, it, it kind of strikes me as to why the same diplomats who once said it for, for Libya can't see its relevance to, to Palestine. And there are other parallels to be drawn. And I think the one right now is a kind of stagnant political situation that is being brushed under the carpet by the majority of the international community for expediency's sake. But it will produce another catastrophic event like a Libyan equivalent of October 7th at some point if it's, if it's left a bubble for too long. So, you know, the last time we, we we spoke, if I remember correctly, and it's been like this for a few years, um, Libya is, as you say, divided between two governments, two establishments. Um, and I think the story of this past year has been Libya's deepening or the deepening control of Libya under these two kleptocratic dictatorships, whilst the international community busies itself with other crises and the UN support mission left in charge is just utterly derelict in its duty. Um, I mean, you have the the oligarch kleptocracy of Prime Minister Abdel Hamid the Beba and his government of national unity in Tripoli and in Western Libya. Uh, and on the other side, you have the kleptocratic military dictatorship of, of the Haftar family in Eastern and Southern Libya. And I stress kleptocracy here um, for both administrations because the modus operandi of both groups seems to be to loot the state and, and, and to profit as much as possible um, from from the state and its functioning, even if it means a state collapses underneath them and, and the society completely deforms as a result. And despite this, you know, when you have two governments in one country, it's it's an image which which creates the impression of antagonism uh, of two rivals fighting it out. But, you know, when it comes to stealing, when it comes to kleptocracy, these two sides work well together. Uh, and I think we've seen numerous examples of it. Uh, probably the best one is, is recent scandals over a fuel import system for Libya, uh, which is always in, in dire need of, of fuel to run power stations and, and other enterprises. But really this idea of that Libya's national oil company is, is trading or bartering oil for re refined fuel products in a deeply untransparent process. 
uh, and it's facilitating massive corruption between both sides, uh, it's, it's a clear indication of how these two can work together. And they use their their kind of military wings, uh, so both of these political establishments, um, to kind of block any hope for, for political change, for political progress, and to, to deepen their control and to almost operate as a mafia across Libya. Um, and, you know, once upon a time, there was a hope that the war which ended in 2020 would result in political change for Libya. Uh, and the UN promised to deliver that change through elections. Uh, we had one failed attempt at elections in, in 2021. And since then, the kind of political process meant to deliver them has has fizzled out. And we had a new UN special representative coming last year, I think last uh, September it was, who was meant to re-energize this process. And, and he has done whatever the opposite of energizing something is. I mean, he sucked the life out of all, uh, out of any political process by just being so utterly inactive. You know, there was a, a policy in place with broad agreement for how one might get to an election in Libya, and he simply refused to act on it for whatever reason. Uh, he's dallied in his own kind of negotiation processes, um, which seem to be unfit for purpose. In the this, this summer of this year, he brought together military actors from eastern and western Libya in, in a bid to, to uh, I think the stated aim was to help create a body to secure elections, to provide unified security and, you know, some kind of security sector reform. But these meetings had no agenda, they had no agreed outputs, and they kind of just brought um, armed criminal actors together to discuss how they can deepen their control over Libyan politics, which seems awfully counterproductive to me. Um, and now he comes up with a new plan to kind of bring together the lead actors, um, Libya's political elite, to discuss the approach to election. But but similarly, it seems devoid of substance. And I don't want to be the guy. I, I know, sorry, I'm 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 dragging on here, so I'll, I'll end with this. But I don't want to be the guy who's just beating up on the UN because they're an easy and accessible punching bag. Um, I think that we cannot overstate how damaging. Uh, this current UN administration has been to to Libya's political process because the UN are supposed to be the implementing body of international policy in Libya. And so when you have an SRSG, a special representative, uh, who is obstructing any progress and refusing to, to, to do anything, it means that the whole international system just stops working. Uh, and so the Debebas and the Haftars are left with their own devices. And, and the result of this is... Um, something like the catastrophe in Derna a couple of months ago. I wanted to bring in Derna because it's been, what, nearly three months, <clears throat> excuse me, since the collapse of the dam with a catastrophic loss of life. But the story has largely been forgotten. The world's moved on, it seems, to other disasters, other tragedies. But what is the situation now, uh, Tarek, in Derna? I mean, yeah, what happened in Derna should have been our October 7th moment, um, the realization of of what happens when you have kleptocratic regimes who are just hollowing out a state for for years, if not decades. Um, and unfortunately, the, the situation in, in, in Berna is, is as perhaps we, we feared at the time, um, where the survivors are almost left to rot. Um, the international attention that was given, I mean, partially it dried up but partially also it was extinguished by by the haftars who grew very uncomfortable very quickly about this notion of all these international actors and, and libyans running around territory they controlled in a completely 
uncontrolled and ungoverned way, uh, they needed to stamp their authority over the situation. And so they locked down Derna, they took full control of, of the rescue and recovery process. And, and now, you know, we're approaching winter uh, where we still have tens of thousands of internally displaced people. Uh, any hopes of um, recovery and reconstruction is being governed by this massively corrupt process uh, headed by by the Haftars. Uh, and we saw a, a recent conference where they tried to invite foreign companies in, you know, to tender bids and discuss how they would redevelop Derna. It's, a, you know, a reconstruction process which completely sidelines the population of Derna, the victims of the catastrophe, and opens the door for massive corruption um, for for the Haftars and, and their acolytes in eastern Libya to engage in. And, you know, this perhaps sums up Libya better than any other um, story. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a very bleak picture. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and the European Council on Foreign Relations, Tariq Megarisi. We are a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. No advertising and no sponsors. If you'd like to support that independent voice, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. Let me ask you now about the Wagner Group. Uh, Prigozhin, the boss, is dead under very mysterious circumstances. But the mercenary group he founded appears to be alive and thriving in Libya. Tell me more about what Wagner is up to. In, in Libya, perhaps more than anywhere else, the Wagner Group's activities were an extension of, of Russian state policy. And so perhaps in Libya, more than anywhere else, it has been easiest to transition from a Russian presence being under a private military contractor to a Russian presence being under the, the Russian state. So, you know, Wagner have been operating in Libya in different guises since probably perhaps 2015. Um, the state in which we know them now evolved in 2019 at the kind of height of the war in Tripoli, uh, where Haftar and his broader coalition were just utterly incompetent at, at making progress. And so they um, tried to bring the Russians to the front line. To cut a very long story short, even the Russians or even the, the Wagner presence that was there uh, was insufficient to prevent the Libyan government and the, the Turkish military support, which they had been given, uh, from, from destroying Haftar's army and, and destroying the offensive. And this allowed Wagner or the Russian presence then to evolve into what we know it as today, uh, whereby just before Haftar's army collapsed, uh, the Wagner troops left the front line and kind of tried to secure strategic sites in the country, uh, like oil terminals, uh, oil fields, and so on. And so today, the Russian military presence is what really allows the Haftar armed forces to A, remain coherent and stay together, uh, and B, to be operationally effective. Uh, and we've seen this in, in the kind of operations in southern Libya, and not only militarily operationally effective, but also economically. Um, so, you know, the Haftar Let's call them a cartel, for want of a better term. They have many illicit streams of, of income uh, through people smuggling, oil smuggling, uh, drug smuggling, weapon smuggling. And I think in each of these activities, you see the involvement of, of Russian troops there. And so, you know, Russia and the Haftars are kind of hand in hand in this military dictatorship kleptocracy that has been formed in eastern Libya following the end of, of, of the war in Tripoli. 
And I think the one dynamic that we should keep an eye on is that now that Prigozhin has has been killed or whatever happened to him, this is now morphing into an official Russian presence. So the deputy defense minister has visited eastern Libya multiple times, including in the aftermath of, of the Derna disaster to, to help the Haftars retake control of the situation. Um, in return, Haftar has visited Moscow. Uh, there are rumors of, of the Russian state formally taking on uh, some of the, the real estate which they already occupy de facto on the ground, and most notably of this is, is the port of Sirt. There has been very little evidence to show progress in, in kind of a formal lease agreement uh, proceeding on that front, but nevertheless, this is where the attention is right now. Um, and I think that despite the best efforts of the USA to, to bring Haftar into their fold, the Russians will keep growing their domination over eastern Libya. Um, and I think if we look forward to the the rise of Saddam Haftar is the most prominent of, of Haftar's children. Uh, he has strong Russian backing, and we'll see this new kind of international coalition emerge with stronger control over eastern Libya as Saddam becomes more and more prominent um, of, of Russia and the UAE behind him. And if I can, I mean, just to kind of tie together this to the question of, of the general state in Libya right now. I mean, I, I've, I've painted this picture of kind of deepening dictatorships in both Western and Eastern Libya. And, and the impression that a dictatorship gives is something solid, uh, something that's in control. But I think in both cases, they are very fragile. Uh, you know, in Eastern Libya, they rely on force and on bribes to kind of, of maintain their control. Uh, in Western Libya, it's a similar dynamic, but but more on the bribe side. Um, and this is all propped up by a current era of high oil prices um, and, you know, a huge expenditure rate. If that should drop and if their ability to, to spend this money should drop, then I think we could very quickly see both systems start to fall apart, start to creak. And, and when that falls apart, that becomes conflict. And so it's, it's something else to keep an eye on. And, and another place to keep an eye on is Sudan where the war between the UAE-backed uh, warlord Hameti and his rival General Burhan is blazing up. The UAE backs Haftar, who's using Wagner, as you said, and Wagner is active in Sudan, where the UAE has interest too. If we connect the dots, what sort of a picture starts to emerge? Yeah, and I mean, I, I just talked about this UAE-Russian coalition behind Saddam Haftar, which, which also helps to bridge Western and Eastern Libya. Uh, and now we see it also help to bridge Libya and Sudan, uh, or more specifically, the, the rapid support forces of, of Hameti. Um, and I think this shows that, you know, these, these state foreign policies towards Libya and towards the region are not limited to the nation state model. This is a policy that, that subsumes mul multiple countries. And, you know, the involvement of, of the Haftars, of Wagner, uh, of, or then Wagner and, and now the Russian forces um, in Sudan has been apparent from, from day one. Uh, now there is even more ble uh, bleed over from not just being about eastern Libya and Sudan, but also Chad as well. And this whole thing is a conflagration, which ironically enough, very similar to the Gaza situation that we first talked about. No one really knows how we end this uh, and how we stop it from from kind of growing and, and subsuming ever more countries and ever more groups. It seems that in a bid for control, the UAE and, and, and Russia have used non-state actors to kind of set the region alight. And 
I don't really know where this ends, um, to be honest, because neither Sudan nor the political situation in Libya nor in the Sahel uh, looks like something that can be easily resolved. And, and as if each individual case was not complicated enough, they are all now feeding into each other and fueling each other's fires. It's a bit messy, I know, and not a satisfying explanation, but I think that that shows the situation that we are in. It's it's messy, it's scary, um, and it's likely to get worse across multiple strata, the military, the political, and the economic, because when conflict burns as it does, we lose political control and illicit activities like human trafficking, like drug smuggling, like weapon smuggling, and so on, they all uh, rise, um, you know, they all they all blow up in this um, fog of war. Yeah, uh, I, I, my next question was about the UN, but you, 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 you've, you've dealt with the UN pretty comprehensively. So let me turn then to my final question, Tarek. And it's... I can go back to the UN if if, no, if, if you would like, because I, I spoke about the negatives, but I didn't speak about the potential for the UN. Um, is, there, is, there a, is there a positive for the UN? Because you've painted a very negative picture thus far. Um, there has to be. We don't have a choice but to find a way to make this UN support mission, not just in Libya, but also in other cases across the region, into something that is more effective. You know, the UN right now is is a symbol for the kind of stagnant and broken state of, of world politics. I mean, look at the Security Council that's utterly frozen and dysfunctional at this point. But nevertheless, we do not have another tool of multilateral policy making and implementation in the region. So we have to figure out a way to make this more effective. And the UN still has gravity and it still has weight, uh, especially in the Libyan case. Um, although the SRSG in Libya, Abdullah Batali, has been far too comfortable in his in his inertia and in his own uh, rut so far. I think there are ways and means that, that the main countries which support him and that are involved in Libya um, can start to encourage him to be more proactive and, and perhaps this kind of bid to bring together what, what he dubs the big five or the main political elites in Libya uh, is the start of this. Um, and so, you know, if we are to make the UN more effective than the international states behind the scenes. And in Libya, there was a very clear group that had formed, um, which they in the you know the typical catchy way of diplomacy dubbed the P three plus two plus two, uh, which is you know the U.S., France, the U.K., uh, Italy, Germany, uh, Turkey, and and Egypt, they have to start proactively driving not only the UN mission to do more and to produce more, uh, but also the Libyan elites with which they have real relationships with. It's got to be a real team effort here. Um, I mean, I think there's a, a tendency for international diplomacy or Western diplomacy nowadays to just, you know, leave everything to the UN. Uh, and it means that we don't have to do too much, but this really has to be a team effort and a kind of full court press. But just because it hasn't been successful or that it is destructive right now, it doesn't mean that it has to be this way. And frankly, if we want a solution, we can't allow it to be this way. We have to find a solution. And there are always solutions when the will is there. Yeah, but I'm, I'm reminded that the League of Nations broke over Ethiopia, another African country, and, and I wonder that the task is so huge and, and the inability of the UN at this stage to deal with it, um, you know, that again is a frightening uh, situation. As you say, these fires that are bursting forth 
can grow into a much larger you know, conflagration. Um, I, I guess we can only hope at this stage. But look, Derek, I want to ask you about the why should we care about Libya question. Europe, as you have argued on many occasions, should have a stake in seeing a stable and secure Libya. But that is not happening. Why not? Is it that we just don't care? I mean, yeah, that's that's a large part of it. Um, or if we do care, there is a limit to how much we care and how much we are willing to put political capital on the table and, and, and to be involved and, and to risk our necks. I mean, at, at the end of my response to the last question, I kind of referenced or, or paraphrased a, a Machiavelli quote, which is basically to say that, you know, when the will is great, the problems are few. So in the sense that when you really want to achieve something, any problems or obstacles in the way, you can easily find solutions for them. Uh, but when you don't really want to achieve something, all you have are problems before you and you can, you know, conveniently point to them as, as excuses for why you can't do what you want to do. And if we take the response to Derna, for example, uh, it really shows you that this is the mindset of, of where we are at right now in terms of international diplomacy towards Libya, uh, whereby, you know, there was a big push um, to say, well, you know, this is a huge disaster. Let's try to to take the opportunity from the crisis and, and, and use the raw shock of what happened, which kind of seized the whole six million Libyan people. Um, and, and kind of shook the political class to to start up the, the political process once again. And the kind of response was to say, well, yeah, we could, but, you know, we have a lot of other problems to deal with right now, and, and Libya is quiet. Um, so let's not open this Pandora's box right now whilst we have limited bandwidth to to deal with it. It also kind of takes me to another quote, which is by my favourite football manager, Arsene Wenger, who once said that, the fear of failure can sometimes stop you from trying anything. And so I think that there, there is a combination of these two dynamics. One, whereby we don't care enough because we don't believe enough that it's important to do something. And then this kind of tick at the back of the minds of the diplomatic community, whereby, you know, Libya is a complicated mess. And if we try anything, we're going to fail anyway. So so what's the point of, of even trying? Um, and the kind of background to all of this is a misplaced belief that the situation in Libya is actually stable right now. Um, like, you know, for all we might complain about the horrific rights records and, and governance practices of of the two kleptocracies in charge, people believe that they can do business with them. Uh, you know, the United States has, has spent the last year trying to bring the Haftar family under their fold, despite all the evidence that he's never going to go in that direction. And, you know, uh, Europeans like the Italians have, have spent most of this year trying to engage in migration deals with, with both governments, um, with, you know, striking up oil deals and, and, and agreements for new offshore gas um, excavation with the government in Tripoli, despite the fact that it doesn't have the legal capacity to enact these deals. And so these deals are going to go nowhere. So we've allowed ourselves this this comforting lie that, you know, Libya is actually stable. We might not like it, but, you know, we have these two dictatorships. So let's try and figure out a way to work with them rather than to upset the whole thing. Um, and I think that these three dynamics together, the the lack of will to do something, the fear of failure and the comforting lie that Libya is actually uh, in a stable place uh, are really going to come back to bite us in the backside at probably the least opportune moment, because that's Murphy's law, right? At the, at the time where we are most busy with other things, 
um, the situation in Libya will probably crumble. We will end up with a new conflict or with some kind of other massive catastrophe uh, and we will have to, to deal with it. Uh, and if we all remember the last time this happened in Libya, which was in 2019, when a war started just as the Secretary General of the UN was visiting Tripoli to, to push his process over the line, uh, this created the Libya that we have today, where we have the, the two kleptocracies, where we have Russia massively entrenched on one side, we have Turkey massively entrenched on the other side. And it created, you know, it pushed Libya to a whole new level of, of geopolitical headaches for the rest of the region and the rest of the world. So if that's what happened last time, God knows what's going to happen next time. Um, so we should care. Because we should be looking to solve problems rather than to try to keep them on ice um, like we do in Gaza, like we do in Sudan, like we did elsewhere. in the hope that, you know, as long as we freeze it for long enough, it, it will be OK. And we should also care because it's not just about stopping negative things from happening. It's about an opportunity cost of losing potential positives um, like, you know, Europe needs to, 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 to grow itself. It needs to grow its friendship base if we want to push the idea of a kind of rules-based order that we once at least pretended to all believe in, but, but no longer seem to do in the aftermath of, 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 of Gaza. And we have to start showing why it might work. Um, and in this era of increased multipolarity, where Europe and the US are competing with, with China, with Russia, with Gulf states, with Turkey, with other regional powers, and the world is becoming a lot more messy, we need to really start you know, growing the gravity and growing the critical mass of, of, of what a normal functioning multilateral order looks like. Uh, and for the Europeans, at least, and specifically in the European case, this starts with taking care of your own neighborhood. Uh, and the southern Mediterranean might seem like a foreign land to to the far right political groups that are growing in in Europe right now. But, you know, Tripoli is closer to Rome and Paris and Madrid than, than Kiev is. Um, and the southern Mediterranean is, is just as much a part of, of the Mediterranean health uh, and so the health of Europe uh, as as the northern Mediterranean is. Yeah, that's a very good uh, note to end on that. Uh, look after your neighborhood and, and the southern Mediterranean is very much a part of Europe's neighborhood. Big challenges ahead, uh, Tedek. Um, but I thank you for uh, staking out the landscape and uh, we can hope that the good angels prevail. It's very much in our hands we should choose to make of the situation. Um, so hopefully your listeners were able to to kind of stick with me through this messy picture making that I've uh, done for you. Absolutely. And thank you. Thank you so much, Tarek. Thank you, Bill. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Tariq Megarisi, a policy fellow with the North Africa and Middle East program at the ECFR. The European Council on Foreign Relations. You'll have noticed that we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. Would you consider supporting our independent voice through a small donation? Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, commentators and writers, contributors like Terek. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And search our library of nearly 200 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud or Amazon. Our podcast guests provide unique insights, insights you'll not find anywhere else. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. 
Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.